it's 6 p.m. and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, September 20th, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jim. The state of California is suing five major oil and gas companies for deceiving the public about their role in climate change. The California report has the details. Then, after a look at local news and weather... Al Stoller talks with Ralph Silberstein of the Mine Watch campaign about the proposed Idaho-Maryland mine. That's all before KVMR's Michael McDonald interviews the founder and leader of jazz collective Snarky Puppy. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. Sacramento County's district attorney says he's taking the city of Sacramento to court for failing to enforce its own homelessness laws. Cap Radio's Chris Nichols has that story. County DA Tien Ho says Sacramento city officials allowed, created, and enabled a public safety crisis by not enforcing their own laws, including the city's ban on blocking sidewalks and camping on public property. We are simply holding the city accountable by the same laws that they enforce on us. Ho filed the civil lawsuit after warning the city, starting in June, that its lack of action has put safety at risk, including for his own workforce downtown. We are stuck in this never-ending Groundhog Day loop where nothing gets better and nothing improves. City officials say they've enforced their rules through voluntary compliance rather than fining or jailing unhoused residents. In a written statement, Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg called Ho's lawsuit a distraction from the work needed to solve the issue. For the California Report, I'm Chris Nichols in Sacramento. A federal judge has ruled that California's policy allowing students to decide whether they tell their parents that they identify as transgender is a violation of parents' rights. The ruling by U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez conflicts with an earlier one that stated that California's policy protects a young person's right to privacy. In the ruling, Judge Benitez says that the schools should be obligated, just as if students suffered a life-threatening injury or has suicidal thoughts. Attorney General Rob Bonta has sued Chino Valley Unified in San Bernardino County after that school district approved a parent notification policy. Several school districts across the state have followed suit in approving similar measures. And now an update to a story we brought you yesterday. More water to replenish a natural spring in a California forest. Less water for the company that bottles and sells it as Arrowhead Mountain Spring Water. That's the result of a decision by California's Water Resources Control Board. From KBCR, Anthony Victoria reports. The season desist order requires Blue Triton, that's the company that bottles Arrowhead Mountain Spring Water, to leave millions of gallons in the San Bernardino National Forest. It's in the mountains east of L.A. Amanda Fry is an activist. She hopes the decision brings life back to the creek where Blue Triton has pumped water for years. So the springs flow, the ecosystem comes back, and it can return to its perennial stream flow. Blue Triton vows to defend what it says are its rights to take the water. It has 30 days to ask the board to reconsider its decision. But the water board has said the company doesn't have water rights. For the California Report, I'm Anthony Victoria in San Bernardino.
California is suing oil and gas companies for deceiving the public for their role in climate change. As KQED's Dana Cronin reports, the lawsuit could be the landmark for holding oil companies accountable. California is targeting five of the largest oil companies, Exxon, Shell, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, and BP. The American Petroleum Institute is also listed as a defendant. The state wants them to pay for the damages caused by climate change. Our case is based on a very simple but powerful premise. You're responsible for your actions. You need to be held accountable for the damage that you created. California Attorney General Rob Bonta says the evidence he's compiled shows that as far back as the 1960s, these companies commissioned studies on the impacts of fossil fuels, but then undermined, lied, and buried the evidence. As a result, he says the state has suffered tens of billions of dollars in damage from more severe wildfires, droughts, and floods. Today is exactly where they knew we would be based on their internal studies. Oil companies are responding by saying climate change should be addressed through legislation, not the courtroom. California's lawsuit is not the first of its kind. In fact, many cities, counties, and smaller states have filed similar suits in recent years. Bonta says many of these cases have bounced between state and federal courts. They have not been able to move forward on the merits. We're interested in making progress, not on being involved in process. We want to get to the substance. California is by far the largest government to bring a climate case against the oil companies. And the state has a strong argument, says UCLA environmental law professor Kara Horowitz. California has clearly constructed this litigation in a really smart way, taking advantage of some pretty strong precedents in California law. Precedence includes a decades-long legal fight with paint companies. The state won a $300 million settlement against them for selling lead-based paint they knew was harmful to the public. Bonta will be seeking a similar outcome from oil and gas companies. Horowitz says she won't be surprised if he's successful, but the case will probably play out for a while. For The California Report, I'm Dana Cronin. A federal judge this week temporarily blocked a California law meant to protect children when they use the Internet. The California Report's Izzy Bloom has more. Known as the California Age-Appropriate Design Code Act, the law would require social media companies to take steps to protect minors' privacy and would limit the use of their information. But the law was challenged by tech trade group NetChoice, whose members include Google, Amazon, and Meta. NetChoice argues that the law violates the First Amendment's protections of free speech. U.S. District Judge Beth Labson-Freeman granted a preliminary injunction, writing in a ruling that the law does not pass constitutional muster. The California law was modeled on similar regulations in the U.K. and passed unanimously in both legislative houses last year. It was set to take effect starting in July 2024. For The California Report, I'm Izzy Bloom. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with more than 850 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Stanford Medicine, comprising its School of Medicine and adult and children's health systems, working together to advance knowledge and improve lives. Stanfordmedicine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, advancing the frontiers of ocean science, exploration, and discovery on the web at schmidtocean.org. 
And that's the California Report for Wednesday, September 20th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In regional news, according to UBANET, PG&E meteorologists and operations professionals, along with weather agencies, are monitoring a potential dry northerly wind event forecasted to start Wednesday evening and extending into Thursday morning. Given that wind event and current conditions, including dry vegetation, PG&E has begun sending advanced notifications to customers in targeted areas where they may need to proactively turn power off for safety to reduce the risk of ignitions from energized power lines. It's called a Public Safety Power Shutoff, or PSPS. This one could start at around 6 p.m. on Wednesday, affecting approximately 4,200 customers in small portions of eight counties and two tribal communities. That would be mostly within the northern Sacramento Valley and surrounding foothills. You can look up your address online to find out whether or not your location is being monitored for the potential safety shutoff. You can do that by going to www.pge.com PSPSupdates. Work on the $62.5 million Omega Curves project, the project meant to improve safety and reduce collisions on Highway 20 by realigning road curves and adding turnouts, will continue over the course of the next few weeks. Starting this Sunday, September 24th at 7 p.m., the Lowell Hill segment of the project between the Omega Overlook and Bear Valley will be closed. The White Cloud segment will remain open with one-way traffic control. That's set to last until Sunday, October 1st at 7 p.m. Then from that time until Friday, October 6th at noon, the White Cloud segment between the White Cloud U.S. Forest Service and Campground and Washington Road will be closed. The Lowell Hill segment will reopen with one-way traffic control then. For updates on this ongoing project, you can visit www.omegacurves20.com. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight mostly clear with a low around 51. Thursday, sunny with a high near 72. Thursday night, clear with a low around 49. Then for Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight a 30% chance of showers, mainly after 11 p.m., mostly cloudy with a low around 34. Thursday, a chance of showers, with thunderstorms also possible after 11 a.m. Snow level at 9,100 feet, partly sunny with a high near 56. Thursday night, a 20% chance of showers before 11 p.m., snow level 8,800 feet, lowering to 7,700 feet after midnight, mostly clear with a low around 32. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, clear with a low around 57. Thursday, sunny with a high near 82. And Thursday night, clear with a low around 55. Currently, there are no red flag warnings or fire weather watches, and you're listening to the evening news on KVMR. Last May, the Nevada County Planning Commission voted a recommendation that the Board of Supervisors not certify the final environmental impact report and deny the use permit for the reopening of the Idaho-Maryland mine. Recently, Rise Grass Valley filed a petition for recognition of vested rights to conduct mining operations at the Idaho-Maryland mine. Up next, Al Stoller speaks with Ralph Silberstein of the Mine Watch campaign. Last May, the Nevada County Planning Commission voted to advise the Board of Supervisors to deny a use permit for the Idaho-Maryland mine. They also voted not to certify the EIR, the Environmental Impact Report. A lot of us, myself included, thought, well, 
it's not over yet, but that does seem to take pressure off us. Unless the Board of Supervisors does something totally unexpected, it looks like that mine project is dead. Just last month, Rise Gold filed a petition with the Board of Supervisors that seemed to throw everything into a cocked hat. Ralph, what on earth are they doing? They're trying every trick they can to get their project approved. So they wanted to discredit the Planning Commission because the Planning Commission voted against their project. When we went into the hearing, they said nothing but good about the Planning Commission and the way they've been processed. They filed this petition to uh, assert they have vested rights to mine, and the purpose of that, if they achieve their goal, would be that they aren't required to have a use permit. Vested rights. What are vested rights? If a new ordinance is passed after you have a legal operation operating, vested rights are a right to continue with an operation. So if you're a miner and you're operating a mine and it's legal and then they pass a new law that says, say, no mining, you get to still keep mining because, you know, you have a precedent. There are some requirements they have to have been mining. At the point in time when the new ordinance was passed, and in this case, the mining use permit was required starting in 1954 in the county. At that point in time, whatever they were doing, they have to continue it without interruption until the present. So they would have to have continued mining their gold mine underground. It sure does not look like a mining operation. No, it doesn't. It's kind of hard to imagine. It's laughable to consider that this is a, a legitimate claim. And yet, what are they claiming? Well, they're claiming that they have a vested right to mine, and they point to the fact that different owners have intended to mine. There's been attempts to reopen the mine, and there's been some activities on the surface, such as recycling of mine waste into aggregate on the Brunswick site. And so they're pointing to these things and claiming that those are sufficient to give them vested rights. Realizing that you are not a lawyer, is there any legal basis for this? Is this reality? No, I think it's kind of a flight into fantasy. Legally speaking, they can't get vested rights just by intending to mine. They have to be doing it continuously. They can't have multi-years of no operation. They actually completely shut down the, the mine in the past, so they'd have to show that they hadn't actually shut it down. It was pretty clear evidence that the mine was shut down. It was allowed to be flooded. They sold off all the equipment, and they sold off their surface lands, and they went bankrupt. So in terms of something that stops, an operation that stops, that's about as hard a stop as you can make. If they'd been mining, they would have to be doing it in wetsuits and scuba gear. I guess they could say that if they're if they were mining in the top 50 feet above the waterline, you know, they could get away with it without the scuba gear. But nobody has reported any mining activities since 1956 when they ceased operations. And they is not Rise Gold. The operations were ceased by previous owners. Yeah, it's been through multiple owners. What's the next step? Where do we go from here? Good question. It gets kind of confusing here. They're going to have the vested rights mine hearing before the Board of Supervisors on the 27th of October. And that pushed back the uh, final hearing on the regular use permit until mid-December. And that's assuming that the vested rights petition is denied by the Board of Supervisors. Ralph, thanks very much for coming in and talking with us. Uh, my pleasure. I've been speaking with Ralph Soberstein, president of the Committee of Environmental Advocates Foundation, sponsor of the Mind Watch campaign. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller.
tonight, September 20th, Snarky Puppy, a five-time Grammy-winning jazz and funk collective, will be playing at the Center for the Arts in Grass Valley. Coming up, KB Mars' Michael McDonald speaks with Michael League, the group's founder and leader. They talk recording technique, band development, Bernard Wright, and more. After his sophomore year at North Texas State, Michael League founded Snarky Puppy. Welcome to KVMR, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are, I think, about midway, maybe not quite midway through your tour. How's, how's the tour going so far? band's playing really well, and fortunately, uneventful so far. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, that's what you want. So Snarky Puppy plays, and you guys record a lot in front of live audiences. How does that come out in your live shows when you guys are touring? Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody in the band is, is a session musician as well, like outside of Snarky Puppy. You know, we play on other people's records as individuals, and in doing so, you develop a certain skill set and a certain relationship with playing music. When you're in the recording studio, everything you do is under the microscope, and, and you bring that with you then when you play in more forgiving circumstances, like live shows, you can kind of get away with murder, whereas in the recording studio, you can't. In a certain respect, in another respect, it's kind of the opposite, you know, because of auto-tune and mm. quantization and all uh, other kind of tools that are available to you in the recording studio, but we don't really use that stuff. You know what I mean? We're When we record, we're doing it in a pretty natural way. So the fact that we have a lot of recording experience and that we're used to being under the microscope means that when we play live, I think we hold ourselves to a different individual standard mm. than we would were we not so experienced as session musicians. There also seems to be an interaction with the audience that I thought may come out just because you guys play so much in front of audiences and record so much in front of audiences. It's a very intimate gathering. Played over 2,000 gigs together. So, I mean, you figure out how to interact with the audience in a way that feels natural and honest. We feel very much at home on stage. It's not like, oh, we have a show tonight. You know, we go on stage and play music for people and, and for ourselves and try to communicate that as best we can does come out. So your latest album, 2022's Empire Central, it won a Grammy. It features compositions by 12 different band members. That's right. Which I just think is amazing that the cohesion and the level of excellence you guys bring to your work and then how that shows up when there are 12 different band members contributing compositions and the album wins a Grammy. Can you comment on that? Just say that every year the band feels more like a collective organism. You know, it's mm -hmm. still my band. And in the beginning, it was like very, very my band and that I was writing all the music. I was doing all the arranging. I was the manager of the booking agent. <laughs> um, and then as time went on, stuff started getting delegated. We actually hired a manager who knew what they were doing. You know, we hired a, a booking <laughs> agent that was a professional booking agent. And, and, and also as the band formed its sound and began to know exactly what it was and what it was capable of, the amount of creative freedom and creative delegation definitely increased exponentially. And now there's no one in Snarky Bobby that doesn't know what it is, how the music should or shouldn't sound. Everyone has that really under control because they have so much experience with it. So then it's almost like when people write for this band now, it's not so easy to tell who wrote the song. You know, in the beginning, mm -hmm. everyone just wrote in their own individual style. But now I think that everybody knows that there is a collective Snarky Puppy style. So people write for that. And, mm -hmm. and, and I love that about mm -hmm. it. I think it expands our breadth of possibility versus if it was just me writing for the band. It would, all, it would sound too much like me. Things would sound too similar. Mm. And the beauty is being a collective, people come in and out. They're able to express themselves in, in other projects. Before we get to that, Bernard Wright was extremely important to you and I think uh, other members in the band and was a big influence, I think, played on this album. Can you talk a little bit about Bernard Wright's influence on you, on, on the music, and what he meant to you? 
Yeah, Bernard was the single biggest influence on, on this band creatively. I, I met him on a church gig in Dallas. He became a very close friend and then became my mentor. And he actually played in Snarky Puppy for several years and recorded on our, our third album, Bring Us the Bright. He just left a huge mark without necessarily trying to. It was just the way that he played and the way that he dealt with the music illuminated this path that no one in the band had previously seen. And so even when he wasn't playing in the band, you know, that path that he made us see just stayed completely lit. And for this record, he came back and played with us. He came to all the recording sessions and sat in with us and is featured on the song called Take It. And it was the first time he had played with us in 10 years and he just sounded absolutely incredible. And then a month and a half later, he was hit by a car and died. And it was a huge shock for us. I mean, we were all grateful that we were able to have documented him in a way that does him justice, beautifully filmed and beautifully recorded. Because despite the fact that he recorded and toured with everyone from Miles Davis to Chaka Khan and people aren't so aware of him and unfortunately his playing hasn't been very documented so at least we're grateful that we're able to represent him in some kind of way of quality you know um but before he passed i love that i love that i'm going to shift gears you have also released work with composer and pianist bill lawrence new album came out this year i believe it's called where you wish you were that's correct can you talk about that experience yeah, Bill Lawrence is a British piano player who has also been a member of Snarky Puppy since the beginning. And he's one of my closest friends. And during COVID, Americans were banned from entering Europe and vice versa. And so there were a lot of European jazz festivals that were looking for artists because 90% of their normal roster comes from the U.S. And I live in Spain and Bill lives in England. And we thought, well, maybe we can put together like a little duo project, fill this gap. So we did, and it was so much fun that we decided like, oh man, you know, I mean, we should write music for the duo. And so we did, and we made this record, Where You Wish You Were at My House. It's beautiful to me because it's just the opposite of the other two bands that I lead, Bocante and Snarky Puppy, which are both ensembles with at least 10 people on stage. And, and this is just two people playing two instruments. Bill plays piano, and I alternate between an acoustic, fretless acoustic guitar bass, and mostly I'm playing a Turkish oud. There's really nothing to hide behind. It's very bare. It's very vulnerable. It's very intimate. It's very free because there's not a lot to coordinate with two people musically. You know, we can kind of go wherever we want, which is wonderful. It's a gorgeous album. Thank you. Well, Michael League, founder of Snarky Puppy, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Michael McDonald is a KVMR DJ. You can listen to his show, The Earworm Sessions, bi-weekly on Fridays, from 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. That's our newscast for this Wednesday, September 20th. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from listeners like you and the Nevada County Fairgrounds in Grass Valley, featuring the 2023 Draft Horse Classic, September 21st through 24th, offering vendors, exhibitions, daily performances of horse driving, shows by the California Cowgirls Drill Team, and more. For information, NevadaCountyFair.com. And Pioneer Community Energy, reminding listeners that locally owned, not-for-profit Pioneer brings a choice in electricity providers to Grass Valley and Nevada City in January of 2024. More info at PioneerCommunityEnergy.org expansion. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Jem, and I hope you have a great night.